Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. Today we have a very, very amazing set of uh, guests today. We've got Zohar Atkins. He is the CEO of uh, Lightning. And we've got Francis Pedrasa, who is the executive chairman and president of, Invis of Infinity Technologies. And in we've talked a lot uh, on all the different Infinity BUs and why we're doing it. And we already talked about Cosmos, which I'll publish shortly this week, actually today. Um, and uh, today we're very, very excited to have Zohar here, who is the CEO of Lightning. I'm personally very excited to go into, because I've seen so much coming from Lightning and I want to find out more of what it is, why it ticks or how it ticks and uh, what is the future of, of it. So welcome both to the show. Thank, Thank you, Stuart. You. Yeah. So let's kick it off. Uh, uh, Zohar, what's a, kind of like a, your your elevator pitch for Lightning? Facebook and Twitter, TikTok and YouTube offer a social network that incentivizes consuming things that are bad for your spiritual and mental health. I'm building a social network in which we're feeding you spinach for the soul and making it taste like ice cream. We are using AI to bring things to life that typically have been reserved for very stuffy people. We're expanding the total addressable market for classical wisdom, and we are going to change the world by changing habits around learning. Boom. Francis. Wow, cool pitch. Yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on that pitch? Uh, that's not how I would have pitched it, which is, but I love the pitch, right? It's like, we're definitely talking about the same thing, you know? Um, and, um, it's such a good pitch. That's a, that's the first time I've heard that. Um, and it's, it's, I guess the, um, it brings up edutainment, right? So there's education, the education industry. I think Harvard is the iconic, uh, brand there. And then there's, entertainment and Disney is the iconic brand. And um, when television was first introduced as a technology, people thought, wow, this is going to change education forever. And then it just turned into like a bunch of, you know, um, uh, to, to use your metaphor, ice cream, you know, not spinach and turned into a bunch of, um, you know, soap operas and, and, uh, um, mindless binge watching of television series and this sort of thing. Um, the hope with technology is always that it elevates us. 
Um, and, and I think the best use of entertainment is, is to focus you on something worth focusing on, which would be something that makes you learn and grow and develop as a human being. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and so now as we enter this new phase and wave with, with, uh, you know, there's a similar hope, by the way, with the internet, you know, you look at great projects like Wikipedia. I mean, Wikipedia, uh, has created so much good in the world. It's an incredible project. Um, uh, and it's an example of the internet's potential for good, but you know, most like in data terms, most of the internet's pornography, it's just a fact. So it's a similar sort of dystopian, uh, you know, womp, womp sort of sad conclusion, you know, you have this really like utopian vision and then you get the dystopian reality. Um, with AI, I think the utopian vision is that this incredible technology elevates humanity. Um, and then obviously that there's plenty of dystopia. Mm, I think after hearing Zohar's pitch, my reaction is, If, if it's going to be utopia or dystopia, it's going to be up to people who have the will to build companies, right? And so um, if Lightning succeeds, it's it's definitely going to make, uh, it's going to shift everything in the favor of the good potential of, of AI uh, versus the bad potential. Um, and making making learning fun, making learning fun is like the hardest thing. Like any parent knows that. Uh, I'm not a parent, but I know that because <laughs> every manager knows that and anyone who's ever run an organization knows that. And I've run an organization and it's definitely hard to motivate people to learn. Um, and so let's go to the total addressable market, because based on what you just said, Francis, uh, it feels as if the total addressable market is not Disney, because this isn't going to apply to everyone but it's still a large market. There are a lot of people hungry, maybe 20%, 30% of the population is hungry for wisdom uh, and for wisdom in every day of their lives and kind of moves towards the good. Zohar, what do you think on that? What's the total addressable market for this? So to start, the core offering is a social network that is high value, which means we're deliberately going to say no to a lot of people in order to maintain the integrity of the network, right? If, if you want to think about it, Elias Canetti wrote a book called Crowds and Power. He claims that there are five different archetypes of uh, various types of crowds. One kind of crowd seeks to expand endlessly um, until it loses its identity. We call that the blob. Fa Facebook is a blob. They've they surpassed a billion users. When when everybody is a joiner, the 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 meaning of being a member is basically nothing. That that stands in stark contrast to early Facebook, which started with just Harvard students and then moved to the Ivy League and then just college students. At the beginning, it was this high status thing. And then mimetic desire took over. And now all the cool kids have left <laughs> to go to Snapchat or whatever other thing is the new, new thing. Um, Realm. I, yeah. I'm not as extreme as the Kotzka Rebbe, Hasidic, 19th century Hasidic Rebbe, who said, give me 10 pious Jews and I'll bring redemption. Uh, you know, maybe that was my, maybe that was a little bit my approach before meeting Francis. Um, I'm I'm moving more into scale mode. So I think to start a million active, engaged users is plenty powerful, spread out all over the world. Um, of course, one of the reasons people join social networks is um, deal flow, broadly conceived. It doesn't have to mean business deal flow, right? Meeting a partner, 
um, finding your tribe. Like there's a lot of reasons to join a social network. I want this to be special and it's going to be an interesting journey to see how it works at the level of a million people where the, the main draw is substance as opposed to rubbing shoulders with celebrities and movers and shakers. I hope that we attract movers and shakers. I hope it's a place where people don't feel spammed by calls to action and where the search for wisdom can stand on its own merits. If I can even achieve 50% of that vision, I think I'll be very happy to start. And then in terms of the total addressable market, I, I'm of the view that once you have a network effect, you have a defensible company in perpetuity and you can do all kinds of things on top of that um, in terms of products and services. So the broad, the broad market for wisdom is huge. I mean, just look at the fact that there's world religions. I mean, what's, what's the total addressable market of Islam, Christianity, and Hinduism? Uh, Three billion. And I don't think we're, I don't think we're competing with those things. Um, so that makes it even better. Um, I don't, I don't have to win over Christians. I actually just have to be a platform that Christians Mm -hmm. feel is simpatico. Um, and so by being radically pluralistic and radically inclusive, of course, there's going to be some people who might want to come on the platform in order to proselytize, and that might create some interesting dynamics when other people don't want that. But um, I think that would be super cool if like everybody's on my platform trying to hog their theology and I'm the place to go to sort of the sort of marketplace for the wisdom competition would be fine too. It reminds me of uh, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, I believe it is, that uh, you have these crazy, awesome traditions where uh, there's like a monk who makes his point and then he makes a whip. Uh, and then it like shocks the audience and you, and, and, and then it creates this total like uh, uproar. And then the next guy comes in and he's got his whip and it's just like, they go point by point. Uh, and, and they, they have real arguments like thousands of years ago that defined the tradition and that, that they were like, okay, well this, this now is our thing based off of these arguments. And I love it that this is like modern yeah. with AI. So what's the, what's the role of AI in this? Yeah. Um, I see multiple roles for AI. The, the first thing is we're building Alexandria, which is named after the Great Library of Alexandria from antiquity. Uh, Alexandria, Egypt was, uh, I believe it was under the civilization that came right after Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great had three generals and they kind of split his legacy up in, by geography. So the, <clears throat> I think it was the Seleucids. Um, I'll have to go brush up on my history after this. Um Seleucids, they they established the Great Library of Alexandria to collect no, no, no. all. There's the Ptolemy. It was the Ptolemaics, but the yeah. Seleucids oh. were. I thought you were going to go through all three of them. The oh, Seleucids, okay. the Seleucids were Seleucids were in Iran yeah. and and sort of the Persian oh, right. Empire. Yeah, the Ptolemy, Ptolemy was in yeah. Egypt, and then the third I'm going to look up because I I don't remember the third. Yeah, I did learn this once upon a time, and now I feel slightly embarrassed, but um. In any case, um, the the project was to gather all of the great texts from all civilizations and put them in one place. And the reason for this is in, in and of itself worth talking about if you're super curious, um, because kind of like the British Museum in modern times, there's a way in which actually demonstrating your cultural, so your your sort of military and imperial 
greatness was um you needed you needed to do it at the cultural level like to sort of show i i'm so spacious that i can incorporate all cultures and um in any case it was a great resource for scholars and scribes but then it burned down uh and so we we lost many many texts actually um for example aristotle's works um what we have of them were his lecture notes not his books if you have even wrote books and we don't have all of his lecture notes like there are just whole treatises of aristotle that were gone that burned up in the great library of alexandria and then there's there's the whole cottage industry of sort of almost speculating uh what would aristotle have written on the subject and you get pseudo aristotle and you get pseudo dionysus and pseudo this and pseudo that as people almost try to um do some some combination of historical retrieval and fan fiction so what AI is allowing us to do is not only make great actual text entertaining um, by allowing us to interact with them in new ways, but actually allowing us to personify ancient sages and chat with them and ask them questions that were outside of their context space and see if they can meaningfully answer. And right now I would say the answers are pretty underwhelming on the whole, minus the gimmick effect. But we're so early and most people are not thinking about the classics use case for AI. You know, at best, if they're in entertainment, they're thinking about the classics use case for like, you know, writing Hollywood scripts. Meanwhile, like classic, like classicists have never even heard of AI. Like, like their, the response to chat GPT is like, oh, I hope my students don't cheat on that exam in which I asked yeah. them like, in what, in what year was Julius Caesar born and like stupid things like that. So um, th this is one of those secrets. Um, Peter Thiel says you should find a secret that nobody else knows and build a business around it. This is one of those secrets where I feel like the world of classical wisdom just has a posture of anti-tech and Ludditism. And the world of tech is basically dumb uh 99 of them don't read and what they do read is like atomic habits um and so <laughs> and so, i can't believe you just said that on a recorded podcast <laughs> that is dumb it's true it's pretty illiterate so, so this is my secret is like i i want i want to create a world in which you can interact with ancient thinkers and ancient texts in a way that makes them memorable in a way that makes them personable in a way that makes them warm and fun. Um, and that's a bit broad of a mandate. And then in terms of like more tactically, I think just think about the, the impact of being able to WhatsApp chat with or email with your favorite philosopher. Think about being in a digital reading group on a book where you can actually ask questions to the text like how many times does this phrase appear and it will give you an accurate response and that will illuminate the discussion. Um, and then that's just at the verbal level. And then we haven't talked about the, the visual angle, which is um, the power to actually imagine these characters. And of course it's going to be somewhat anachronistic, but I think it just um, reminds you, Hey, you know, Plato was a human being. He lived, he ate, like he went to the bathroom. And although we're not going to accurately represent him by bringing him to visual life, we're going to make him feel more like a friend and a companion. And I think that that is going to do wonders um, for both as a study tool, but also Francis used the word infotainment or edutainment 
also at um, simply for entertainment purposes. Imagine using the Apple Vision Pro to learn yoga from ancient Indian Brahmins in Mysore Palace. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so there's a lot. I was of talking to a friend about this the other day, and he said, just don't steal Dr. House. I was like, you know, you know like, you know, the, the TV show House, like sort of don't, don't take Dr. House and, and put words in his mouth. I was like, dude, I'm I'm a I'm a classics com AI company. Like, you don't have to worry about that. But like my hypocrisy, my Hippocrates and my Galen are going to go toe to toe with your house and just be so much better. Um <laughs> So, okay. So when, when we look at these books of all cultures, we see uh, the original book, like that's this big, very small. And then you see the commentary on those books. And then you see the commentary on those commentaries. And this is like with the Hadith and Islam, with all, all of these different things have these amazing, like that the commentary is almost as valuable as the, as the actual thing itself. And so you've got all these people and now we're coming from a contemporary angle after the science and, and rational thought and all these different things. And then applying our own commentary to these things, how are you going to um, uh, kind of try to get to the essence of these thinkers uh, as well as, and how are you going to incorporate this commentary feature of wisdom? Mm. Good question. I believe it's called, is it called lyric genius or rap genius? Wh which um, genius, remind yeah. me, rap genius, right? Yeah. Okay. So when you go to rapgenius.com, you can go to any song and you can look at lots of different commentaries on like, what did that word mean? What did that phrase mean? We've been doing that level of glossolalia for thousands of years. Um, that That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to create a tool that's like that for every great text um, that allows you to scroll and see what have other historical commentators said, but that ultimately prioritizes content generation and preserves it as the living tradition rather than the antiquarian uh, object. Mm. So um, I think one of the problems with academia amongst a thousand is that the way that they revere the text is like, is I'll, I can liken it to somebody who has a diamond and keeps it under lock because they're so afraid of it getting stolen or um, someone dropping it or getting a smudge. And they just like stare at it through the glass at super thick glass and like, isn't this an awesome diamond? Dude, I want to take out that diamond and pass it around <laughs> and have people love it. And If the diamond breaks, I'm not too worried because the the true wisdom is not breakable. Um, so the commentary aspect of the ancients is amazing. We need to preserve the feature. But what we don't want is policing the boundaries too much of what makes for a good or worse commentary. We, we want to almost keep the crowdsource aspect of social media and let people upvote <laughs> karmically like as in a Reddit forum. Uh, you know, which commentaries deserve airtime and which don't and sort of let that be our contribution to the annals of our particular epoch. 
It's so fascinating. And Francis, if you have anything, let me know. But uh, but this 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 idea of like upvoting and generation, it brings it back to the LLM. Like, how do you actually train the LLM for the listeners uh, who don't understand how to actually how this is going, how these LLMs are being trained? Uh, essentially, they're being trained by human feedback, a lot of human feedback. There's a lot of computer feedback as well. Um, and so you put a bunch of text into these machines and then you have human trainers uh, basically teach the the model how to respond in a chatbot like experience, eventually bringing it to the point at which it is now. Um, and so what you're really saying, and so if you think about this in the future, there's going to be trainers, I mean, invisible trainers, invisible trainers. Yes, yes. yes. And, and all, uh, somebody pointed out to me yesterday that the, there's a key thing embedded inside invisible, which I don't think was intentional, which is that nobody, very few people who are outside of this world understand how important subjective feedback is, because one thing that's toxic for an, for an Indian person isn't going to be toxic to an American. Uh, and so the fact that Invisible is slow, so global actually provides this sort of a, a, a benefit in terms of, of training these models. Um, but back to that original point, which is that if you go into the future, you, you we're going to be training models on Plato or on the entire history of classical uh, Western thought. Uh, and and uh, it's so interesting because you'll have a fine-tuned model that becomes the historical, it's good that like the, the model itself is going to become the historical record. Like the, the old historical record of writing is going to change. I would love to, if either of you have any thoughts on this, it's, it's a fascinating field of like where we're going because this, this revolution of AI is as big, if not bigger than writing itself, like the writing process. I have, I have a meta thought on this, which is AI proves how indispensable tradition is. One of the key features about LLMs is that there's no take backs. Once it's been trained on something, the way you improve it is by training it on something else, but you can't tell it that the thing it learned is wrong. You can just revise by, to use the, 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 the common phrase, fine tuning. That's exactly how we should think about tradition. Once upon a time, it was okay in most religions to have slavery. Now we live in a world, thankfully, where that's not the case. But we didn't really get there by saying the Bible was wrong or Hinduism was wrong. We got there by fine tuning the models and saying, well, this is what slavery actually means. This <laughs> here's the application. Here's where it doesn't apply. Rule exception, rule exception. And that means that precedent always has a role to play in the updating of the model. That's ultimately why I'm long tradition. I mean, it's not the only reason, but like. Sure, you could you could start a new age religion and build your your new thing from first principles, but I'm pretty sure that in two or three generations you're going to run into the same challenge <laughs> that other traditions have faced over thousands of years. And tradition is one of those self cleansing mechanisms where it learns how to evolve and adopt with changing norms and changing data and and empirics, but somehow to do it without saying, "Hey, we were wrong," and we we. <laughs> and now we have the truth, but instead creating this sort of smooth over effect where you can look at it at the tradition at any point in time and say the tradition has integrity, even if on any given issue it's it's wrong. So does does the AI currently hallucinate? Sure. Much like perhaps was the world really created in seven days? Oh no. Uh did the Bible just hallucinate? Come on. Millions of years, billions of years. Um and then it's just like, oh, I guess the Bible didn't mean that a day was 24 hours. Hmm, wow, fancy that. 
Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so much interesting stuff here. And I want, I want to, I want to put a pin in something uh, that we'll come to later, which is like, what is the actual structure of lightning? What are all the different, cause I know there's this giant hierarchy uh, sort of thing. Um, the categorization scheme that Francis uh, has put a lot of work into with all sort of descending things and lightning isn't just lightning. There are other aspects to lightning underneath it, to the side of it and above it. Um, so I want to put a pin in that. But the thing you just mentioned about fine-tuning models, fine-tuning the tradition as it's, uh, itself as a fine-tuning mechanism for human consciousness. And I think what we haven't talked about is the fact that we're, we're all talking from individual kind of perspectives, but then there's the community angle as well. And what's like, like the fact that I say something and then Francis changes my thought by saying something else, where does that come into it? The fact that we're not just one individual, we're also a community in a tradition. Um, and how does that play into lightning? For me, it's core. Um, I, I personally, so I'm an autodidact. I love, and I'm also probably quite introverted. You put me in a library for eight hours, like I would just pick up 20 books, read them straight and be a very happy man. But then I would leave the library and I'd want to tell someone about all the things that I learned and I'd want to share the light. And I'd be very sad and lonely if like there was no social interaction. And then not only that, but then I'd go out and I teach or I'd have a conversation and it would internalize and touch my heart in a completely different way. And I'd be like, wow, I, I learned something from this act of sharing and from the feedback I got in a way much more than just me and my thoughts and my and my loops. So I very much believe that put good people together and give them good conversation and there's going to be an aha moment. And that's what we're trying to create. The value prop is the aha moment. Our value unit is... <laughs> measured in ahas per minute, so to say. <laughs> and while I think that content contributes to ahas per minute, I think the real magnitude jump happens when you have really good people who are all sharing that common project. When I was 17, I went on a trip to Israel um, with 25 other 17 year olds who are super curious and thoughtful and we learned text together for five weeks. And it was such a powerful experience, not only learning these texts, but learning them with others, that it was that experience that made me decide I wanted to be a teacher. And that I could have not had that experience and just lived my life and carried it on as normal, seemed very sad. And I feel responsibility to share that experience with others. I think Judaism has a really great practice around tech study and community. And one way to think about lightning for myself is I'm simply trying to expand the content from Torah to any tradition, any wisdom tradition, and expand the audience from one religious tribe to any any person who considers themselves a meaning seeker. Mm. Brilliant. Okay, so let's go back to that other piece. And I'd love to hear from Francis, like, because me and Francis have talked, we've done a few episodes on Infinity. Uh, and for the, those of our listeners who don't understand, uh, Infinity is sort of like the holding company that uh, that is going to turn into this like a giant innovation machine. Uh, one aspect of which which is invisible, one aspect of which is uh, lightning, one aspect of which is cosmos. Um, and so, Francis, I'd love to hear more from you where lightning came from uh, and and how it evolved. 
on January 1st, uh, New Year's Day, 2022, uh, I uh, dedicated that year uh, to going to the well um, of inspiration. And um, I sent an email to the company and I uh, introduced them to the I Ching, uh, which is an ancient Chinese text, the Book of Changes. And uh, it has 64 symbols that represent different moments in time, seasons of life, situations you might be in, and how you move from one situation to another and learn from them. Um, and uh, and in, and encourage them to um, uh, go to the well, which is one of the 64 symbols, uh, and encourage them to um, cultivate dragon energy, which is the first of the 64 symbols. Um, and so, uh, dragon energy, uh, you know, dragons in the East are very positive symbols, uh, and they're associated with lightning, um, and they're associated with the springtime fertility. Uh, and so, uh, if you were to say to, uh, you know, someone in, in, uh, uh, China or Thailand or, uh, you know, any, any Asian country, um, that, um, uh, that they have dragon energy. This is a very positive thing. In the West, uh, the dragon is, is is a more sinister, uh, dark, uh, sort of demonic symbol. Um, but in the East, it's a very positive symbol. And um, and uh, the uh, life-giving power uh, of, of lightning, you know, lightning is obviously terrifyingly powerful, but the life-giving power of lightning um, is that it is... Um, uh, is always represented inspiration around the world. Hey, why that is, I don't know. I mean, that's that's fun to and fascinating to unpack. Um, but the question is, what would a human being be like who was who was struck by lightning? You know, um, how powerful and effective that would that person be? So when we think about uh, most human beings today, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I grew up in a society that became increasingly polite and just sort of is very polite. And I think there's a lot of politeness in the world and a lot of nice, nice people. And we, we, niceness is good and politeness is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but certainly, um, uh, that's not the energy that changes the world. So the I Ching being a book of change, you know, if it teaches you the secret to change on literally page one, the first symbol is be like lightning, be like the dragon, you know, cultivate dragon energy. And so for me, that's like, how, what would it be like if I was inspired every day, every day I was full of inspiration. I don't know about you, but I definitely wake up a lot of days and I'm, I'm like dragging, you know, I need my coffee in the morning. I need more than one cup of coffee. I'm like, <laughs> why, you know, like, why am I here again? This is a slog. Um, and then there are other days where I'm flying. I'm just full of, well, full of dragon energy. And I am able to create so much change. What's the difference? Um, and the difference is, I mean, you know, you can approach it in many ways. You can be sort of reductionist and be, it's a biochemical. So drink more coffee, <laughs> go to the gym, go to the gym. Um, you know, and definitely, I, you know, I, I definitely have found that there's a lot of truth in that and, you know, controlling your diet, your exercise and all of this to get in the right state. But there's also an, a, a spiritual diet, an intellectual diet. What do you, 
how do you, what sort of a state of mind are you cultivating? Meditation is so powerful in this. Um, music is very powerful. Singing is powerful. I've been singing a lot lately. Um, you know, uh, the most beautiful words turn into poetry. The most beautiful poetry turns into song. And when you sing that, you, you, you enter into the state of mind from which it originally proceeded. Um, and if it, and it's a great way to connect with the tradition, uh, is, uh, singing mantras, um, and almost every ancient civilization has them. Um, so that cultivates state of meditation, singing, uh, books, music, art, architecture, all these things elevate and create a state of mind. And the classics are basically the history of lightning strikes on the human race, right? So like um, Plato and Socrates were definitely struck by lightning. You know, Moses was definitely struck by lightning. Um, uh, um, Vyasa, the uh, legendary author of the Mahabharata was definitely struck by lightning um, and so on and so forth. You know, um, uh, um, so Snorri Sturluson, the uh, old Norse author of uh, the uh, prose and poetic Edda, was definitely struck by lightning. Thor. Um, so uh, Steve Jobs was struck by lightning. That guy was that guy was full of lightning. You know. Um, uh, so I, I, how how do how do we do it? And so we did a whole year of every day me sharing a quote and a few reflections, and then I eventually ran out of. I ran out of energy to keep doing it. I didn't have the time for the side project. I was too busy with invisible. And then I gave up and I thought nobody would care and nobody would notice. And then like after just enough days, I got this message being like, um, what happened? I like, I like need these every day. Like, and this is my coffee. Like this is, I you know, keep going. And I'm like, I can't, I'm out of energy. And this was parole and parole, like kept it going. Um, and and then fast forward, um, uh, Zohar was my coach, and Zohar actually Zohar filled me with lightning. Like when I first met Zohar, um, most people don't know this story. Actually, uh, when I first met Zohar, uh, it was the end of 2019, and I thought that there was a significant risk that Invisible would not last longer than about another year, mm-hmm. um, that we would eventually run out of capital and fail. Um, but we had gotten to enough success and enough scale. We're at about a million run rate, um, that we had people around the world. Uh, and, uh, we had a couple hundred people at that point. And I wanted to meet a few of those people, um, just to know that, um, uh, that something I did had an impact, you know, because my, um, my first company, Everest, had half a million people use it, but I I never got to meet that many of them. And I I you know it's one thing to receive a note uh, saying thank you so much for building this; it was so helpful. But it's another thing to meet people uh, where it's their livelihood and it's and they love it. So I went on a trip and uh, um, and I went to the Philippines and Kenya and uh, Brazil, and then I came back and. Um, uh, and I met Zohar and I basically poured out my whole soul. And he's one of the few people in the world to this day that I think uh, can really uh, handle me fully unleashed um, and um, uh, handle me unhinged and handle me unleashed. Um, and uh, and I was, you know, in a pretty I just needed encouragement. Honestly, I needed inspiration. And he had me write down 
I remember like to this day, our very first, uh, you know, time we, we, um, we met, uh, as a student and teacher, um, instead of just as friends. And he had me write down, uh, on three pieces of paper, um, uh, inspiration is with me here. And now I will get to the promised land. And I forget what the third one was. Um, but definitely those two, uh, those two that I will, I will get to the promised land and that, um, uh, the, the, the source of inspiration is with me here and now, um, I'm not alone. Um, uh, those I kept in my wallet for like three years, uh, until I eventually lost them. Uh, but by the time I lost them, I'd gotten to the promised land <laughs> and lightning and lightning had become a company. And Zohar had decided to uh, uh, to join and and become the CEO of that company, and so um, it you know incredible turn of events that like this this project, which was really just an originally a daily email list, um, Lightning was just a daily email list, and then it turned into a Notion database, and then it turned into a WhatsApp group, and then it turned into a company, and then Zohar took it over, and and you know now uh, it's about to spin out as a totally separate company with separate funding and you know, has 500 members and, you know, is using technology and is going to change the world. Like, uh, it's an amazing story um, already, already. And it's just at the, we're just at the starting line. So wild. What's, uh, what's your version of that same uh, story, Zohar? It was very moving just, just now hearing that. My version of uh, of how Lightning was formed, or yeah, well, or... how did you get involved? What like how how did you get like how did you first come into this invisible sphere? And what were your thoughts as a classicist who is who is kind of uh, not necessarily opposed to technology, but sort of outside of it? And 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 how did it feel to like uh, uh, grab the inspiration, the Lightning, to actually create Lightning for all these individuals all over the world? I feel that. I hope you don't mind me saying this, Francis, but I, I feel that that Francis is a once in a generation talent and has a great destiny. And I, whether he, he feels it day to day or not, I feel that he is struck by lightning and being connected to him strikes me with lightning. So for whatever mysterious reason, I'm kind of just following that intuition. Of course, we can get into the details. I think what's been interesting about the past year plus is how my my Francis thesis has has turned into an invisible thesis, has now turned into a lightning thesis. And like you asked me to give the elevator pitch and I can give the pitch and I can talk about the business model of lightning and, you know, what our like milestones are that we're trying to hit over the next two years and that kind of thing. But I put it like this. Francis is a technologist who is wise. I'm a wise person who, <laughs> for whatever reason, has found product market fit with people who <laughs> found tech startups. Um, I, I I could speculate as to why that is um, psychographically and sociologically. But for whatever reason, like I would just say God has has made my congregants people like Francis. Um, <laughs> I mean, there aren't others like him, but I just mean, there's a, there's a, there's like, a cohort yeah, like of, Mark Andreessen follows you on Twitter. It's like people like that. Those are the people that like are attracted to you. 
there's there's a there's a there's a lot of young people who are ambitious to make the world a better place using tech who have an entrepreneurial spirit and are super smart but call bs on institutionalism and i am a person who went through a lot of institutions and called bs on them but maybe was not courageous enough to leave or maybe i was simply strategic and was biding my time or needed to get something from it but like i emerged from 12 years of higher ed mm. with my love for learning intact but my sense that this ain't it chief <laughs> um like i don't want to be a harvard professor like that seems sad and miserable to me personally it's hard it was hard to visualize like what does success actually look like for me as as an institutional rabbi of of a large congregation like that feels like being the mayor of a small town and um stifling to my desire to be creative and to forge alliances across the sort of denominational denominational and ideological spectrum i feel like i'm like too for lack of a better word, like left wing and to right wing for any for any group. Um and that like I, I'm not oh, a provocative I'm not a provocateur because I like to provoke, but I definitely don't want to be in a place where like you're not allowed to provoke. Yeah, interesting. And you know every like we like to think that we're open-minded, but we're not. Um and so I'm a very I'm a very polite person, relatively speaking, or I used to be. But at the same time, I'm like definitely enjoy pushing the Overton window. And so it's like, I don't know, there are just a lot of I'm rambling now. <laughs> I think I'm I was I was a seeker as well. Francis was a seeker and I was a seeker. Um, and I'm still on a search. And the search is like, where does wisdom and inspiration actually live in the world? How do you create a home for it? Um, and you could just take the hermetic approach and say that there is no that there is no institutional home for it and just, you know, go find your your three people or whatever it is and hang out in the woods. But what if you could actually make a difference? And so I think there's a certain optimism that comes from these builders and these tech folks. And that's given me maybe the energy to try to to try to unify with the world and change the world as opposed to just sort of throwing the towel on it and say, well, I, you know, I, I've got my Plato and my Heraclitus. I don't really need anything more than that. Mm. So it's a two-way trade I, on some level. And, uh, and then the other thing is like, I'm just insatiably curious and I like proving people wrong, which is a, not a good motivation. Um, and so the idea of like being a classicist who also understands finance and business strategy just like appeals to me both because it's like st it stimulates curiosity and also because I just don't like the idea that, oh, because you study pure things that somehow like, God forbid, you should involve yourself with, you know, contribution margins and COGS and CAC and LTV. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have to go interject in this and and bring it back to invisible because it's so fascinating the how invisible came to be what it is today, which is like we'll take the work that you don't want to do that you hate doing and we'll do it better, faster, and cheaper. 
Uh, and that work is exactly what you said, like minutia, really, really uh, low level work of in trying to figure out how to do how to put knowledge work into processes and, and figure out how to plug them together into the Legos. And it's so fascinating because I joined this crazy group of contrarians because um, I wanted to get rid of all this work. I didn't want to do it. And I thought, OK, Invisible has it and they'll they'll give it to me by going through it. And little did I know that I would then be entered into this world world of minutiae. And but at the same time, the thing that keeps me here as well into this this crazy group of contrarians is that there's this higher level th thought going on as well. And just like classics and things that it, like when you were talking about doing a side project in, at, uh, at Invisible Francis, and it reminded me of the Google side projects. But instead of like like technical side projects, you're doing side projects of, of higher level thought with thousand year old traditions. And it's just like such a fascinating place to be where where the the higher there's this higher level strategic beauty that's infused inside of this company. And at the same time, there's the lower level intense work that sometimes drives me out of my mind. Um, and uh, and I'm op just open up to either of you to, to kind of like um, pontificate on this on this on this strange, strange paradox. Paradox is in the nature of reality. Paradox is the nature of the mind. Um, paradox is a great sword to wield. You know, how can two things that would seem to be opposites or seem to be contradictions, how can they both be true? Um, so uh, one of the paradox, I mean, you're very right. Invisible is a highly paradoxical company. Um, and uh, the paradox you're getting at, which is the company exists to, to eliminate work, to automate work, to empower you to just get it all, all off your plate. But if you're working at the company, um, you know, clearly it's not an Ouroboros. It's not a snake eating its own tail, right? It, it, it at the most extreme, like if, if Invisible was a black box that could perfectly execute any process, it would execute itself. <laughs> you know, it, you know, there would be nothing to do. We would just be all sitting around. Like there'd be no employees. There'd be well, no, that... there'd be no people working here. And we would just be sitting around uh, experiencing leisure uh, because we would just have, uh, you know, fully automated and fully, you know, um, used AI to to solve all operations problems for everyone in the world, including ourselves. And, uh, and we would just be shareholders and benefiting from the rent. That is not true. Like we have to actually build this thing every day. Um, and human labor is still involved and it's built into the invisible thesis that humans are still in the loop and are going to continue to be in the loop for decades and decades and decades. And that we're not going to live in a like binary, fully automated world where humans are unemployed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I think are... in, in 20, yeah. in 2035, so to say, um, yeah. the, the work that human beings are doing is going to be super meaningful. I think that, that, that's the idea is like, if you can make the human work, 10% more meaningful every year compounding and make yes. all the drudgery automated. Like, just think of that. So, and, and by the way, like in terms of the philosophy and theology on work, um, many, many wisdom traditions see a dignity in work. So I don't even separate from the separate from the descriptive thesis that human beings are needed for the work to be of quality. I think there's a moral thesis, which is, Human beings enjoy working. We like seeing the fruits of our labor. What we don't enjoy doing is work that any person can do or that a machine can do, you know, being paper pushers. So there's for sure some paper pushing in the short term. I think where the meaning comes in for me personally is 
if you feel that your paper pushing is in the serve is in the service of a world where mm -hmm. there's less paper pushing in aggregate and that you can sort of obliterate the negative aspects of work while retaining the dignified aspects, then that's that's beautiful. Yeah. And I view lightning as a supply input into invisible. So if you think about these two organizations, Harvard and McKinsey, they're symbiotic. Mm -hmm. Harvard, Harvard mass produces college grads. Um, and actually, ironically, it doesn't even mass produce them. It, it, it artificially restricts supply. Um, so if, Har if Harvard was truly honest, they would, it would, there would be a million or 10 million Harvard grads every year instead of however many thousand, right? But they're not. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, Harvard produces Harvard grads that then get hired by McKinsey and McKinsey is the, the, the demand and Harvard is the supply. And, um, and so if invisible is trying to be the 21st century iconic tech enabled services disruptor that disrupts companies like McKinsey and Accenture, um, you know, we need our Harvard lightning is invisible's Harvard. Um, and, um, and it's a, 21st century open source um free university um and lifelong learning institution we're reimagining uh publishing we're, we're disrupting penguin um so instead of books physical books you get at the bookstore you go to alexandria um and it's you know we're also disrupting kindle and ibooks in the process it's like a much better reading experience much more networked and using generative ai to 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 illustrate it um, disrupting Harvard because we have our own professors, we have our own classes, we have our own learning groups um, uh, and uh, way of learning. And then uh, disrupting Disney because we're trying to make it fun and entertaining. Um, and that is a supply input into Invisible because if you think about what is the future we want to live in by the year 2030, 40, 50, um, uh, do we want to be hiring college grads or do we would we rather hire someone who's been learning through the Great Library of Alexandria since they were seven years old and has like gone through all of our courses and read all of our books and we've known them and watched them grow intellectually for years and they've like, you know, they've applied to become an agent at, their, you know, a very early age and like went through all the very practical, you know, digital uh, digital warrior training, you know, they became a highly productive, uh, individual contributor and, and, and learned all the skills. They learned how to build spreadsheets. They learn how to, you know, code, uh, they learn practical skills and not just liberal arts skills. So they got both, they got the, both the, the broad humanities education, a science and engineering education and a practical, you know, digital productivity education. That person is somebody that I would love to apply to become a partner at one of our companies, whether it's Invisible or Lightning or any of the Infinity companies. That is, that's the sort of person we want. That's a supply input. I'd rather have that person than a Harvard grad. Francis, I have an economics question for you on that point. It was a beautiful yeah. vision. <clears throat> we live in a time where I think there's the, the company man has been replaced by the, the LinkedIn man. There, there's some book on that, right? Like the, the the person who who worked at a company for 30 years, moved his family to the, you know, the town where AT&T or IBM was headquartered and just felt like I'm going to put in my 30 years and then I'm going to get my retirement and like have a good pension and life is good and simple. Um, yeah. And now it's like people stay at a career for a year or two years and they're always self-promoting and you're the CEO of you, says Reed Hoffman. Uh, you know, never stop hustling, grind set mindset. 
Um, it's like you, you'd be you'd be working at Invisible, but you got some side hustles and you're like, right, it's 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 about me. It's not about the company. Um, so this is a sociological shift. What you just described is almost like a, a mean reversion where yeah. not only is a person going to have a 30-year career arc at Invisible, so to say, but they might even have a 60 or 80 year career because we're going to start them at the age life of 10. Extension. And, you know, yeah. with life ex- extension, they could be doing it into the age of, let's say, 100. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, it's funny because um, they say about Warren, there, there's some cynics who say about Warren Buffett. I mean, yeah, he's a good investor, but like what really makes him great is simply the fact that he's been compounding for longer. Like the guy started when he was a teenager and he's an old man and he's still doing it. <laughs> so, like, his actual edge isn't his ability to pick winners. It's just his ability to pick winners over a spread of 70 or 80 years instead of a normal career is like 40, 40 years. Um, so yeah, that's so unfair. I mean, most people sell and they don't hold. And uh, I know it's and, unfair, and, but it's hilarious. Um, yeah. It's hilarious. Look, you know what, there is something contrarian simply about starting young and, and not retiring. In any case, um, there was a question in economics in my, question, economics question. Yes. Okay. My economics. So my economics question is LinkedIn man versus um, career man. We like like Apple calculates the lifetime value of an Apple customer. So like if you know, from the moment that you buy your first Apple product, they could model out, let's say, all the other Apple products you're gonna buy over your lifetime. And it's like, I don't know, you spend ten to twenty thousand dollars per year and you compound that over 50 years, it's a lot of money per person. Um what you just said in your story of like, let's say that the 11 year old who's the, trained as an invisible agent and then sticks with us for life to be a full stack knowledge and wisdom worker, that that seems to me like there's an, um, a lifetime value to that as well. But it's not the lifetime value of the customer. It's almost like the lifetime mm-hmm. value of the, the, the producer. So I'm curious right. if there are, if there's anyone else who's calculating yeah. lifetime value of worker as opposed to lifetime value of buyer. And also if you like have actually thought about the delta between let's say a company that has <clears throat> workers who are let's say following your model versus the Reed Hoffman CEO of, CEO of you model where like they're churning every year or two. Because such you didn't give them enough perks. <laughs> it's such an insightful question. Wisdom. Yeah. So so we are creating a new model that's neither the company man or the LinkedIn man. Um, and it's more of the, it's in the name, the infinity constellation, right? So we're trying to create enough opportunities in a within an ecosystem um, that, all right, so you were at Invisible for, for eight years. And you vested your stock, you moved through a progression of roles. Um, and now what? You decide to go start your own company. Great. So we're going to back you through visionary ventures. We're going to invest in your new company that you're starting. Or you see one of these other companies that we've started and it's much earlier stage and you'd like that because you want to get more equity and you have want to have a bigger influence again. And uh, and so you join, you know, you join Lightning or you join Cosmos. Um, and... Uh, and then, oh, you move cities. You know, you used to live in New York, and so you're in the New York Mafia, uh, New York City Mafia. But now you move to Buenos Aires. Now you're in the Buenos Aires Mafia. Or like, oh, you know, you you used to be really focused on um, AI, but now you're really focused on longevity. And so you m- move from the AI syndicate to the longevity syndicate. Um, 
And so what we're trying to do is, is through our community, or you, you used to be interested in, um, in poetry and now you're really, really obsessed with material science. So you, you know, you're, you're, you, you changed, uh, you, you, you join a bunch of new groups, groups in Alexandria and you learn from different professors in Alexandria. We're creating these, like this combination of network affected products that is sort of similar to the iPhone and AirPods and the MacBook. You know, if, if, if MacBooks, uh, if MacBook was a separate company than Apple and AirPods was a separate company than Apple, um, they would be very valuable companies, but they're much more valuable together than they are, you know, separately. And uh, unlike uh, Apple, in which these are all part of one company, um, uh, because tech-enabled services companies are so capital efficient and because of the innovator's dilemma, it actually makes more sense to start AirPods as a separate company, but create an ecosystem where there's shared services, talent mobility, uh, cross-selling, and other uh, and, and and like product product linking, you know, product integrations um, that actually keep it all together. But I am sort of imagining a new a new economy, a new a new and a new sort of social contract with our workers. And I am you're correct that I'm more focused on the lifetime value of the. Um, uh, the partner, uh, than I am the, uh, the lifetime value of the client. Um, and the new ecosystem is all around remote work and knowledge work. Um, and, uh, the, the, the effect of technology on human potential, instead of automating human potential, enhancing human potential, uh, and just, you know, most people in the industry have gotten this wrong. And I thought, I thought that ARB would eventually reduce over time that certainly, once invisible, I always, you know, if you'd have told me eight years ago that when invisible was uh, at a hundred mil run rate, VC still wouldn't get it. I think I would have fainted. Don't. They don't get it still. Ah. No, they don't get it. No, they don't get it. They don't. They haven't even begun to get it. No, 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 no. And so that arb is so big. It's so great. Oh. I mean, the the longer that arb lasts, the better. Okay. So uh, can, the last fifteen minutes, I would love to do uh, what do you call it? Were um, uh, build in build in public. Um, I, I would love to understand how are we going to get external capital uh, for these these business units because um, it's so interesting. Like like because uh, and I'll try to set this up a little bit more. We now have Invisible. Invisible is the premier AI training, the premier AI human trainer. Moving into an AI enablement, if we get a contract in AI, AI enablement, it's going to bring a lot of a lot of attention to us. Uh, and then we've got Infinity. All of that's hard to explain just to random people. And this is why we're doing this podcast is to really get into it. Cause it's so interesting for me. I know it's so interesting for, for everybody at this company. And they're like, what, what is that? What is that massive multi multiplayer online game? So how are we thinking about raising external startup capital for these? Because startup capital, though the, the initial, um, the initial investors for startup capital, they're pretty open-minded. Um, they invested in invisible a long time ago, right? Like there, there were investors who got this. Can you talk more about this, Francis? And maybe Zohar uh, adds, what are your, some of your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I'm happy to. I mean, the, the one approach is just make sure these companies are capital efficient enough uh, and have a clear enough business model that they can get to profitability within two years. Uh, lightning, lightning under, you know, first of all, lightning wouldn't have been started by anyone else other than us. Uh, and I don't like, you know, if Zohar wasn't the CEO, who would be like, honestly, like this is very, like, it's only somebody who's a, 
rabbi who's a former Oxford Road scholar who has a large tech following on Twitter um, that, uh, you know, can seamlessly blend commentaries on Warren Buffett's investment letters and uh, and Heraclitus's fragments with uh, the use of generative AI as like meme and commentary. That is just a unicorn founder, right? So this founder product fit. Um, and, um, and I guess my role, you know, I have a bunch of roles, but like one of them is being the, um, uh, uh helping to create the capitalist, uh, you know, um, uh, strategy around this. And, and the, um, and my view is that there's a way of running this company, which would be a classic venture approach, make it, you know, capital intensive, raise a ton of capital, um, deploy a ton of capital and, um, and try to take as much market share as possible and, um, you know, get to an IPO as quickly as possible. We're not doing that. Um, uh, and, um, we don't, that's not because we're not ambitious. We're extremely ambitious, but there's an opportunity to sell lightning B2B, even while we keep it free for people B2C. Um, think about how many remote companies there are in the world, um, that, uh, would just find it so powerful if they had training and education, corporate training, corporate education, and corporate inspiration and morale boosting uh, from a global online lifelong learning community. Like that's huge. Like, so uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, can, can, do I, do I believe that like Zohar has the um, hustle to sell and the vision to sell to a visionary client? Do I believe that there are visionary clients out there who are going to buy that and eat that up yeah i do and and if and if lightning gets to profitability then what that triggers is uh first of all it enables the sovereignty game instead of the venture game and what that what that triggers is a compounding so uh you got one client you got to you know you got enough clients to get the profitability you know at that point you have a business model and you can just hire more salespeople. and by hiring more salespeople, you know you grow your profits and you're growing your profits you grow your R&D budget, you grow your R&D budget, Alexandria gets better and better and better. You can start to pay professors more and more and more. Uh, you can start to afford more and more marketing and and you, you know all the flywheels take over. Um, so in my mind, most of the risk and the value creation literally occurs in the first two to four years as you build the virtuous cycle around profitability and reinvestment. Uh, that's so interesting. So what are your thoughts on that? I agree 100%. I would just add that we're pretty capital efficient um, because our our products are kind of like software. Um, like what do we produce? We produce words fundamentally and then we use AI um, to, to produce content at scale, which basically means that our, you know, you have to pay for like a chat GPT account and a mid-journey account. <laughs> but this is not like, we're not building some fancy platform, you know, maybe at some point we'll, we'll have our own app or something like that, but I'm not imagining that like for the first year or two, we're going to run this like a Reddit forum. We're going to just let 10,000 people love us so much that we have to exist. And if that's the case, you can pretty much do anything. Um, so I think like our, our, our short-term strategy is simply, <clears throat> is simply create value. Um, let that value creation be so obvious and then figure out how to monetize. But to Francis's point, like I'm fairly confident that we can get a mid-sized company to look at invisible 
and say, invisible is a success. Its culture is a determinant of its success. Why is that? Well, the chief culture officer um, brought in a whole bunch of things. And that was one of the one of the reasons why agents love this company and prefer Invisible to all the other BPOs and scale AI and so on and so forth. Oh, great. Help us do that. Sure. No problem. Like, here's our suite of services and our, you know, here's our faculty roster and we're going to give you access to this and I'm going to bundle it up. And um, so you only need one or two contracts and you're basically at break even. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned visionary client and we still didn't get to that piece of how do we actually raise money or actually, well, how do we find a visionary investor, maybe angel or. Uh, you already got one. Hello. Francis. You know, like, yeah. We have our first, we have our first in investor who is. Uh, in I don't need that much money. Uh, That's all you need. I'm raising, like, I'm raising 500,000. Like I basically need $500,000 to, to, to get to two years of runway. Um, so, so invisible, invisible in the next five years, if it hits its targets, will grow from being worth roughly a billion today to being worth roughly 10 billion. Mm. Um, so ask yourself what 1% of the company is worth. Um, it's it's worth a lot. I can finance all this company personally, no so, other investment. But, so but, but I do I think that's the optimal strategy? No, like I, I don't. I think it's actually good to find strategic angel investors yeah but yeah, but agree. but but really it's not I about like, money though yeah it's, 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 really, it's really not like it's more really very quickly it becomes about strategic advisors so i think yeah. it really the approach should be around advisors not investors and the reason for that is invisible is at a point where uh look we just locked up a single contract that's worth 50 million dollars next year like that's a that's a huge contract that um you know the invisible ideally you should never raise another dollar of primary capital ever again um any fundraising invisible does should be around secondary capital to like create a market around its its stock um and so the goal with with any sovereign company should more or less be that like you know you maybe take a little bit of capital in the beginning to finance the early team and early hires but very very quickly you want to get to profitability and after that you're 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 you can still use your your shares to attract advisors and you can create a secondary market around your stock. Um, but you really don't want to overcapitalize these things. There's not, it's not a very strategic thing to like go, Oh, you know, like we need to attract external capital and raise money from VCs. This company does not need a dime from any venture fund. Fascinating. Uh, I just got the key part of what, what the strategy is, which is essentially we're doing an IPO without an IPO, basically keeping it all private, creating a secondary market where people can buy and trade their shares, but according to without, without going to the public, which is fascinating. Um, uh, and if you have anything to say, please feel free to say that. But I was thinking for the last seven minutes, we could focus on that visionary client. What is a visionary client? How do you identify them? How do you connect with them? Um, so, so they, they have a saying in architecture, great clients make great architects. And the reason for that is, um, you know, you can have the most visionary architect ever, but if the client, you know, uh, doesn't appreciate it, all they're going to see is costs, uh, extra costs, and they're just going to want the standard mass produced stuff. Um, so, uh, there's a similar, similar thing here. Um, you know, things like Udemy exist. Uh, there's, there are online learning platforms. Um, so if you're just focused on purely utilitarian uh, corporate training, there are solutions. And I think Lightning will eventually develop something that even the most 
hard-nosed, purely utilitarian buyer will be like, oh my gosh, this is clearly the best uh, way to train knowledge workers in the 21st century or train, train for this set of skills that I actually want. So I think we'll eventually get to that client. But those are not the early adopters. Those are not the visionary innovators. Um, uh, and it's sort of like the Mac versus PC ads, you know, like, uh, in the early days when, when Steve jobs was, you know, competing with Bill Gates, you know, it was very clear that like the, the Mac buyer was not necessarily someone who, you know, uh, wanted the most powerful Excel experience. Um, they were somebody who, uh, had a certain vision for like how technology should work and what it should feel like. And it's supposed to be a creative tool. And so I think that there are there are definitely um, remote companies that where where the 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 leadership teams uh, have a vision for their culture, uh, which is inspired, uh, humanistic, holistic, um, and not just purely utilitarian corporate training, but also an overall humanitarian approach to to liberal liberal arts learning and and, and intellectual vibrancy and. Um, you know, having people bring their whole self to work and their various interests and various subjects to work. And so those companies value art at work. They value music at work. They value uh, discussions about place and architecture at work. They value uh, and they value um, uh, learning traditions that go back hundreds and thousands of years and all the various subjects at work. Um, so I, I have another thesis, which, so, um, the, lots of companies have a budget for, um, initiatives that are potentially divisive, um, because they're politically charged and represent a certain ideological stance. Um, I think that this allows companies to invest in something that can broadly be considered inclusive, um, because of our range of traditions represented, but also that takes the temperature down and makes companies less, less toxic. I think a lot of companies find themselves between a rock and a hard place as they want to show, let's say, moral support for some of their workers related to identity issues. Um, but then once you get involved in culture war, that you become sort of a place where you get pulled further and further along and you end up alienating most people who just want to do the work. People want to talk about their identity, but we don't know how to do it in a way mm. that is positive sum. And I think lightning is actually an alternative solution and a disruptor to politically correct diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So um, I believe we are true diversity, equity, and inclusion by going back to the intellectual and spiritual roots that mm. make us human and celebrates that diversity of traditions without getting caught up in the like how does my size my slice of the pie compare to your slice of the pie yeah so uh so for three minutes left uh let's talk about what well actually let's if we can go quickly into the different pieces that represent lightning so there's lightning there's also castelio and i want to i want to map that yep yep um all right uh so there's um, Lightning, which is the company, uh, inspiration as a service and everything falls underneath that. Uh, there's meditations, which is our daily, um, uh, quote and art and music that we share every day on, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, WhatsApp, and email. Um, and, uh, and then we have, uh, the great library of Alexandria, which is our 
classics library for books, um, where we're, we're both bringing the classics to life uh, using generative AI illustrations and beautiful typography uh, and, and intertextual linking. Um, uh, and also um, uh, where we have uh, subject uh, specific uh, groups uh, for every book and for every author. Um, and uh, we're bringing the authors to life themselves. Um, and within Alexandria, we also have a whole history section um, uh, called um, uh, Chronicles um, uh, and uh, and Realm, which is sort of for place and Chronicles was just time. So the time dimension, place dimension. So you can go back, you know, uh, we are, for example, Jerusalem, you know, it's like a Wikipedia article, except you can see it at different times or at, at 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You can, you know, see uh, generative AI reimagining Columbus. Um, and, uh, and so, um, there's that. And then, uh, there's, um, Atlantis, which is our architecture, uh, library where we're taking photos, uh, of all the great buildings ever made. Um, and, um, and also using generative AI to reimagine ancient uh, places um, uh, or things, for example, uh, uh, Solomon's temple. Um, there's uh, um, the uh, our Olympic games, uh, which include or mostly uh, different, you know, different intellectual games, like for example, Japanese koans. Uh, so we have a koan, you know, uh, a library. Um, we have mysteries, which is our musical uh, uh, experience, um, and uh, all the musical traditions of the world are represented there. We're trying to use AI to bring that to life and that experience to life. Um, and uh, we have we're, we're all building our own encyclopedia using AI, and that's mostly built into Alexandria. But we have it's called Endless. Endless is the name of our encyclopedia. Um, and I should bring up the the rest. One second, I was doing that from memory. Um, uh, to, 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 uh, museum. Um, so the original museum of the great, of the great library of Alexandria, um, uh, in historically was called the museum, which is where we get the word museum. And the museum is basically our art, art library. So we have, uh, uh, we're trying to aggregate all the, uh, HD images of all the great paintings and, um, Eventually, we'll add statues as well and, and other other fine arts, um, but that's all there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it for now. Oh, oh, sorry, I forgot the Celestial Observatory. Um, so observatory um, uh, includes all the values, principles. So it's a values database, principles database. Um, but we're also working on other projects um, like, uh, for example, um, uh, adding all the uh, religious pantheons. Um, so all the gods uh, and goddesses of very various mythologies. Um, uh, so for example, inside of Celestial, there's a page for uh, uh, Shiva. Um, and so uh, these, um, uh, the idea with Celestial is um, what are the archetypes uh, that, that um, humans have gone to over and over and over again as sources of wisdom, inspiration, and truth. And so we got uh, right. to wrap this up, but uh, when I hear from Zohar, what is the website? How can people uh, connect? Lightninginspiration.com. Cool. Thank uh, you. Yeah, go for that's, it. Got, that's got links to everything. If, if, if you were to join one thing, you should join our meditations. 
it's a WhatsApp group where you get the daily content that Francis alluded to. And if you're to join two things, I would say join Chronicles, also a WhatsApp group uh, where we discuss the meditations and it's interactive. And if there's any call to action, it would be in addition to signing up, invite your friends. They don't have to be at Invisible. Anyone you think it could be part of this 1 million strong global community of wisdom seekers, tell them about Lightning and looking forward to learning with you. Boom. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.